Take your copy of the Bible, turn to the book of Revelation. The very end. Well, we're going to be the beginning of that book, but it's at the very end of the Bible. Verses 9 through 20. This is the word of the Lord. It was written a long time ago, but it was written for you today. Hear God speak to you. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, and to Pergamum and Thyatira, and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let's ask God's blessing upon his word. Father in heaven, we have read your word, and we know that you speak to us in it and through it. These are the words of heaven. We ask that your spirit would work in our hearts and minds now, that we might understand, that we might believe, and that we might be made holy and bring glory to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Many of you know I got back from class just a couple of weeks ago, immediately got sick, so I kind of like, really I guess last week was the first week my brain was back in many ways. 
I took two classes this semester. I took hermeneutics and I took uh, teaching in a higher ed, adult ed, basically. It's PhD, don't embarrass the school, please. <laughs> and uh, a lot of it was uh, geared around how to teach adults. And so they have us reading all of this, I would not say high-end neuroscience because I'm too dumb to read that, but neuroscience on how the brain works for adults to learn. And it's funny, modern neuroscience, I mean, you're not going to believe this, modern neuroscience is finally discovering that when you map out the brain, the way that adults learn is very unique and special. The way that adults learn is they look for whatever this new thing that they're interacting with, they look for it to have a point of contact with something that they know, and then they just follow the path they've already traveled to get to understanding. So if you go to talk about this new super fancy theological concept, all I need to do is connect it to something that you already understand and you'll be able to process the whole thing. And so we're reading all the neuroscience and having all of the fancy conversations and having all of the you know, super wonderful educational jargon that just makes me not excited. <laughs> And finally get to the realization as a class to talk about this, to go, you know, realistically, this is what neuroscience is telling us. That brains really don't like learning, and they do as little as possible to learn. Thank you. Preachers have been saying this for thousands of years. Mothers have been saying this for thousands of years. Teachers have been saying this for thousands of years. Of course, it's so obvious. It's absolutely obvious to anyone that knows. The single most difficult thing to do in any learning environment is to try to learn something entirely new that has no point of contact with your life. You realize that's why they teach us in preaching school to use illustrations. So that it connects into your life, so that it, it smears over into your world, so that you have understanding and mingling and overmixing. Why? Well, because we as creatures, as God's creatures, are lazy critters. We really are. But even more than being lazy critters, we like to be simple critters. We like to be really simple creatures. We don't like, think about it, Americans, we don't like to do nuance very well. I mean, turn to any of the news networks and watch how they argue. See if any of them have the ability to do nuance. I don't care which side of the aisle you fall on. No concept. Read any sort of kind of high-end newspaper article where they're really trying to make some serious academic argument. We don't do nuance well because it's complicated. We don't like to do balance well. We like to go to extremes because extremes are easy. If I can get to the, the extreme, then I can... Uh, vilify the other side. I can make them into the bad guys and us into the good guys. And it's simple. If it's on this news station, it's good. If it's on that news station, it's obviously bad. If this president did it, it's good. If that president did it, it's bad. It's so simple. And to arrive at balance is infinitely complicated. It's interesting how the Lord understands the laziness of the human heart, the laziness of the human mind, both actually biomechanically, but also in our own hearts. And interestingly, so much of the scriptures are held not in extremes, but in tension. 
or two extremes at the exact same time. Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. Which one is more? The correct answer is neither. Please answer that in your head. Don't say that out loud. We just confess that. Is he, is he more God or is he more man at Christmas? Is he more God or is he more well, He's always God and he's always man since the incarnation. But we like to be reductionistic. We like to be simple. We like to reduce things to this small little nugget of big picture idea that I can deal with and it's easy and it's manageable and I can probably stick it in my wallet and walk away and forget about it for weeks and it's easy. And it's interesting to see in the history of the church, this is what happens with our relationship to the Lord Jesus very shortly after he goes to heaven. Very shortly after he ascends to glory, conversation begins. Who is this Jesus? Well, that is actually a really important question. I mean, it's kind of like the question of all time, really. It's the question. Who is Jesus? I mean, traditionally, people stay dead. He didn't. Traditionally, people can't really talk to the dead and call them out living. He did. Who is this man? And the early church struggles through this, and the church, the Christians, get it very quickly, very easily. He's God, and he's man. And the earliest Christians understood that he was man because they saw him. They ate with him. They probably heard him snore gently in the evening after a long day. They knew he was human. And so the struggle for them was to begin to process in their brains that he's God as well. There's no question about the humanity of Christ initially because that was something they experienced physically. I mean, John placing his head on the bosom of Christ. Fishing together, seeing him work, pulling the net, they would have known. But interestingly, in church history, that first generation wrestles more with the divinity aspect. Well, shortly after that, you begin to have Christians that never saw Christ. They never saw him in his humanity, never saw him on earth. And so they begin to have questions, not so much about the divinity, but about the humanity. Surely he can't be human. I mean, if, if the scriptures are true and everything that they said that he did, how he, he could multiply bread and fish and he could walk on water and he could command the storm and the sea, he could raise the dead. Only God can do that. Surely he can't be man. And so you have the Apostles' Creed making it clear and even clearer in the Nicene Creed, which we confessed a moment ago. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, abundantly clear. Begotten, not made. He is man. Now, the reality is the matter for most of us, being that most of us here are members of Presbyterian denomination that is quite confessional, uh, these are tensions that we don't feel the same way. From a young age, our our kids in Sunday school, if you ask them, is Jesus God, what are they going to say? Yes, kids, yes is the correct answer. If you ask them, is Jesus a man, what are they going to say? They're going to say yes. They don't understand how that works yet, but they know the answers. The danger for us, though, as uh, Presbyterian types, conservative Christian types, is not that we miss the balance here. It's that we miss the balance here. That we unintentionally grow reductionistic in how we think about Christ. That we unintentionally see him in a way other than what he has portrayed himself. 
And I think the Christmas season particularly highlights one of those in the American culture. In that, the American culture is perhaps the most narcissistic culture in human history. And I perhaps, because I, I don't know. We are so abundantly good at figuring out how to make things all about me. And in many ways, we have even figured out how to make the nature of Christ all about me. And we've reduced him to a safe, placid, blah sort of savior that is always so safe. Which is why on Christmas Eve, I'm preaching another sermon. You see, you get to the passage here in the Revelation of John, and you get to see Jesus not only as the baby, the helpless one in the, the animal trough, having you know just been born and being stored in a place that my children, I would have had a tough time sticking my kids, being honest. Being born to a poor family that it would have been an embarrassment in many ways to know they're not the type of family you'd want to hang out with all the time. I mean, my goodness, whew. But here we have Christ at the end of time. At the other end of the story, in essence, John gets a glimpse into what it will be like. I, John, your brother and partner. And interestingly, he he connects these three things all into the same. They've got one modifier for all three, tribulation, kingdom, and patient endurance. John is our partner in all of these things because in many ways they overlap. He's our partner in the kingdom of God. He's our partner in waiting for Christ. He is our partner in suffering, for this is the nature of the people of God. And John is given a vision of something staggering. John's given a vision of something that we don't fully understand. He's given a vision of the Lord Christ. And what we're going to do is just highlight some of the key themes that come through this vision. He's on the Isle of Patmos. He's been exiled. It's nearing the end of his life. You have to think at this point, many of the other apostles have already been martyred. It's an aging man. And on the Lord's Day, on Sunday, he's probably at some point either headed to or has already come back from worship. He's spending a time in Christian meditation, thinking on the Lord. And in that moment, the Lord Jesus comes to him and he's given a vision of reality. The thing to understand about how God's visions work, and certainly his visions related to his glory, is that they are not literal visions in the sense of what you see is what you get. In fact, actually, every time that you start talking about these visions, some of the words that show up in English the most are like and as, because the language just begins to fall short. Maybe the best illustration how we can think about this is to say, how much do you love your children? If you have to answer that, how much do you love your children? What are you going to say? You know, I'm uh, all my heart. What does that mean? Are you going to cut it out? I mean, that's, that's a terrible decision if you love your kids because you're going to drop dead on the spot. Already we've shifted to metaphor. <laughs> In our first answer, we shifted to metaphor. Okay, so all my heart's not good enough. Think of something else. Well, there's no way to put words to how much I love my kids. 
Not to articulate the true depth of it. I'm, I'm going to shift to literary devices to help you understand, right? With all my being, thanks. That's, again, not really helpful. Well, I would do anything for them. Really? Okay. Maybe not anything, but most things I would do for them. I love them more than life itself. Never really tested that theory. I hope I never have to. You, you see, we, the language is limited. What we have the ability to do with words is actually, it stops at points because words can't fully get at the reality. They help us kind of paint pictures of it. And so John in his vision on the Lord's day, hears a voice talking behind him and you get the impression from the grammar, he recognizes it immediately. It's a voice he spent years with. A voice that he longed to hear again. It's the voice of Christ speaking to him, except this time it's loud like a trumpet. Again, there's that like, why? Expressing the the tone, the quality, the, the tenor booming voice. I have something for you to do. I'm going to show you something, and you need to write it down. Okay. And he turns around, and as he turns around, he begins this description of what the Lord Jesus is. And the fantastic part, being that you are all brilliant Old Testament scholars, you know that all he does here is mishmash Old Testament images. It's like what he sees is too big for his brain, and it kind of breaks him a little bit. And so he just starts kind of stringing together Daniel and Ezekiel and Isaiah. It's the best I got. Now, I have to say, I applaud John that when you, you know, overwhelm him, he goes directly to Daniel. I'm going to be honest. That's probably not the first place I start thinking uh, if I'm overwhelmed. Uh, It's like Daniel. Of course it is. What does he say? Well, all right, let's look at the pieces as he goes through. Uh, Then turning, verse 12, to see the voice that was speaking to me. Okay. I saw seven golden lampstands. All right. Yes, lampstands. We're excited. Well, you get already at the end, Jesus explains the significance here. Verse 19. Right? Therefore, the things you've seen, those that, are the, uh, those that are and those that are yet to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. Jesus himself is actually telling John how to read Revelation. For those of you that grew up reading it literally, you didn't read it right. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus himself saying, look, all right, the seven golden lampstands that are in the background of the story are the seven churches. And we remember last week we talked about that number seven, how it represents the fullness, the totality. So as John turns around and begins to have the vision of what Jesus looks like, the backdrop is the totality of the church. All of God's people in the background, having been gathered together and thinking again how differently that looks than maybe what we're accustomed to seeing here, right? Church here, we see aches and pains. We see some where you're like, wow, you look really good today. Some you're like, ooh, man, you had a rough week. Have you had a cold? Did you have the flu this morning? I'm so sorry. There, it's the gathering of the church from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every eye color, every hair color, every kind of background, all different kinds of people. Here they've been made new, and they are clothed in glory. 
It's the significance of the lampstand. What's the point of a lampstand? It's to be brilliant. I mean, what's the whole point of a light, right? You want a light that's brilliant. You don't want a light that's dim. That's a pointless light. You need a light that, that, that's brilliant, particularly a lampstand that's going to show it off, that's going to reflect its glory. So the backdrop of even seeing Jesus here is the beauty and glory of his church. I find that to be an incredibly significant thing that as you see Jesus in his glorified state here, the, the first thing you're even introduced to is the church. I mean, I, I would suggest that's maybe a bit significant, isn't it? That God's people are so important to him that when he begins to showcase Jesus in fullness of beauty and majesty, his people are intimately connected with him. You can't get rid of them. Jesus loves the church, loves her so desperately, she, t- she goes with him forever. This would be maybe important that we love the church too. Okay, so we see the backdrop of the church there as John turns around. And 13, in the midst of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man. So he switches from Zechariah 4 with the lampstand, talking about the, uh, the church of God, the people of God, switching here to Daniel chapter 7 and chapter 10. The significance of the son of man is that it is a human Now, it's a special one, one that is marked as unique in the Old Testament, but it is a messenger, a work of God, but it is a man. And this one, the Son of Man, is clothed in a very specific way, with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. And here he's defaulted to Exodus 28 and 29 where he's describing the clothes of a priest. Only these clothes aren't just of any priest, they're of the perfect priest. He's describing, and you think about it, I mean, he's he's a Jew, so he would have known what the priest looks like. He's describing the ideal version of it. He's here wearing the robe, and the robe is perfect. It's, it's uh, exactly right, and he has the golden sash. And again, kind of, what's the significance there? Is the, the regality, the loveliness, the authority, the perfection. The opening kind of glimpse that he begins to articulate for us is this backdrop of the church and Jesus, the great priest, interceding for her. To think about this one, this man, this God-man, this Jesus Christ, his mission being to intercede for the church, to be her mediator, to be her representative, to be her go-between, to be her head. Now, I would humbly suggest this is a portrait that the American church particularly needs to think about. Because we have, in many ways, lost the idea of a priest at all. I mean, part of that's a good thing. Part of that is because we understand, if you need to go directly to God as an American Christian, can you? Well, yes, because I go straight to Jesus. And that's true, and that's fair, and that's right. Christ is God, we go directly to Him. 
But maybe we've forgotten a little bit of the humility. You don't just go rushing into God's presence with no thoughtfulness. I mean, I don't mean like don't pray until you have it all written out and planned, but I'm meaning like to show proper respect for who God is. To be reminded that when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies into God's presence in the Old Testament, it was a life and death matter for them. They thought about that very seriously. It happened once a year and you prepared for it for a really long time. You know, maybe part of it is because sometimes we think we deserve to be in God's presence because we're really that awesome. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, let's be really honest. How many of us on those days, we kind of, it, it lingers into our mind. It sneaks in. It kind of creeps in. But we, we would never say it this clearly. But we say, well, you know, I mean, honestly, God kind of likes me because I'm really a special deal. And again, we would never say it that crassly, but we think it, don't we? I mean, it makes sense that he saved me because really, <laughs> I'm a good guy. I'm a special thing. We've lost the idea that we need a priest, that we, we need to be cautious about going into God's presence. We've lost what we've read in Jude earlier, that God is so serious about sin that we should be very, very cautious in how we live. You need a priest because you don't belong in God's presence apart from Christ. Well, all right, so this priest is introduced, the backdrop of the church, here King Jesus as the great priest of his people, and then verse 14, he switches here to Daniel chapter 7, um, uh, verses 9, really, he's uh, great too, I love his memory's not right, and so he kind of botches the quote a little bit, because he's trying to get uh, the concept, but doesn't make it exactly right. Um, Verse 14, what does the priest look like? Well, uh, not really going to give you what he looks like. You can't get a mental picture here because he doesn't give us enough to, to actually get that. The hairs of his head were, like, were white like wool. Now, does that mean that Jesus is gray hair like I'm quickly becoming? No. Significance here not being the color as much as, again, the brilliance. It, it's white, it's clean, it's shiny, it's reflecting it's beautiful and you're going to see why that makes sense in just a second his hair is white like wool it's brilliant his eyes were like a flame of fire they're brilliant his feet are like burnished bronze we actually don't know what type of metal this is we're guessing it's bronze but the point being strength and reflecting it's brilliant His voice is like the roar of many waters. It's profound and mighty and strong and heavy. And skip to the end of verse 16. His face looks like the sun in full shine. I read an article last week. And uh, there's a lady who's been to the eye doctor and she went to the eclipse like we all did here and enjoyed and uh, supposedly said, I don't need no stinking glasses, I'll be fine. I can't confirm this because I haven't seen her eye chart, but supposedly she actually has an eclipsed shape hole burnt in her retina because she looked at the sun without glasses. And the brilliance of the sun at like a bajillion miles away was still so bright, three quarters of the way hidden behind the moon, that it burned a crescent into her eyeball. 
understand what John is attempting to describe here is the same thing minus the moon. What he's attempting to describe as a man is brilliance that is so bright he doesn't know how to articulate it. What does his hair look like? It looks like glory. What does his eyes look like? A different type of glory. What does his face look like? Well, it looks like trying to stare at the sun. It hurts your eyes. It's so glorious. What does his feet look like? Well, they're shiny glory. It's glory in person form, and it hurts to look at because he's so brilliant. And that's in essence what he's trying to describe here. And this is where you get to see that it's like this, it's like this, it's like this, it's like this. You don't have the words to figure out what to say. Christ is so wonderful. I don't even know how to articulate what I'm looking at. And again, how many of us, we we feel safe with baby Jesus? Or we feel comfortable with teacher Jesus? But when was the last time you sat down and thought about, he radiates glory like the sun, Jesus? The, oh yeah, by the way, you try to look at him, and he consumes you with his brilliance, Jesus. And if that weren't enough, oh yeah, by the way, he's got something in his hand and something else happening. Seven stars in his hand. Okay, like stars, not entirely sure. What, again, think about it. He's radiating glory. I, I'm probably going to guess this is not simply like twinkling little stars of David. right? The, the idea here being that suns in his hand, like stars, burning stars, I mean, brilliance. Again, conveying this idea of glory. And then, oh yeah, in the midst of all of this glory, a double-edged sword comes out of his mouth at the portrait of a judge. Oh yeah, oh, so now the glory suddenly becomes problematic. Glory enough as it is, is just staggeringly problematic. I, I mean, I don't really know what to do with glory. I don't know how to handle this. I don't know how to process. Oh, you know, by the way, this one who is so glorious, he is the judge. He brings the sword with him. A sword, an implement, implementation of justice right there. His tool for destroying his enemies and vindicating his people. And again, I think John here probably does what is the most common sense and healthy and wholesome response in all of human history. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Great choice. I mean, that is actually a brilliant choice. In in light of who this man is in front of him, who this one is in front of him, the great judge, the great source of glory himself, John's like, and I'm out. I'm done. It just goes down. That's it. He thinks it's the end. He's finished. Which is staggering to think that one who lived in Jesus' presence, one who was taught by the Lord Christ himself, one who witnessed the miracles, one who was at the Last Supper, one who heard the promises, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you even to the end of the age. That one is like, and I'm out. I have no better choice than to just, I'm going to like pass out dead. It's my best option. I'm going to suggest when your best option is to pass out dead, that's not a good, not a good situation for you. You're not in a place you like to be. 
And then Jesus responds here with just unbelievable tenderness. And then again, the, the greater glory. Don't be afraid. Fear not. I'm with you. Oh, yeah, by the way, I'm the first and the last. I am God. I am the living one. Notice, not dead. Death didn't win. Oh, and on top of that, I hold the keys to death and Hades. And the keys are significant. When the kids just bought their new house, it's a special day when you get the keys, doesn't it? I mean, it's a special day because that's when, what? It's your house. Well, I mean, it's the bank's house, but it's your house. You get to go and live in your own house. It's your own property. I have the keys to my car. You shouldn't because it's my car and not yours. Jesus has the keys to death and hell because, oh, why? They belong to him now. He conquered them. They're small. He can step in and out of them if he ever wanted to ever again because he owns them. They are his property. He has conquered them. This whole sermon was geared with a a series of themes in an attempt to put them together in our brain so that we would maybe for a moment stop trying to reduce Jesus to a safe little boy or a safe, excellently conditioned, manicured man and to be reminded that he is the most terrifying thing that has ever stepped inside creation. Because he is the Lord of life. He is the Lord of glory. And that is not something to be taken lightly. I would encourage you as your pastor, for those of you that are members here and those of you that are saints as a a brother in Christ, I would encourage you, take a few moments this week In a world that is attempting to get you to think about consumerism by spending your money, and maybe you potentially think about the baby Jesus, to spend just a few minutes thinking about the glory of the Lord Christ. And to think that we have the privilege, the mercy given to us, to be counted in the number of the church. And then maybe also... Let that impact your evangelism just a little bit. Because your family members and neighbors that don't know him will be the object of this one's wrath. And that should maybe give us a little bit of pause in how lightly we skip through this season. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this portrait of the glory of Jesus. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you that we are not now currently objects of wrath, but you are so patient. Forgive us for presuming upon your patience. Forgive us for our sin. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.